Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, a wedding tombstone. By Clarice Irene Klingen, uh, first published in The Black Cat, November 1895. This is the second issue of The Black Cat. And um, I wanted to uh, talk about who Clarice Irene Klingen is. But before we do that, um, maybe we should judge her just based on her story alone. I trust you. Which way do you want to go, Jesse? Into the story? I think I think the story first, because I feel somehow like this is a true story in a certain sense. Um, she's relating a reality, but I also know it's a fiction story. So. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll be happy to read it. <clears throat> but as, uh, as you probably know after these years, um, the, the story is... Uh, is spoken by a uh, a grandmother mm. to her granddaughter so it's basically a first person narration and i'm really not good at sounding like a grandmother <laughs> or even a 15 year old girl but i'll do the best i can all right a wedding tombstone so you never heard tell of melindy barber's wedding tombstone said grandma in a tone of surprise for the land's sakes, I thought everybody knew about that. I confessed the most abject ignorance and immediately drew up to the fire. This was partly to gain information and partly because, although the fireplace was wide and deep-throated and big logs were blazing in it, there were biting drafts of stinging November air coming in at the loosely fitting door. For grandmother would not be persuaded to leave the home that had been hers for 50 years and which now showed some signs of decay. She sat knitting vigorously by the firelight, for although she had all the modern conveniences of heating and lighting, her big fireplace cast its ruddy glow out into the room through all the long winter evenings. I was an angular schoolgirl of 15 then, with a great love of the romantic and was on a four-weeks visit at the old homestead. It seemed never to occur to Grandma that, having been raised in a different part of the country, the happenings at Ragged Corner, where she lived, would naturally be unknown to me. She always expressed fresh surprise at my ignorance on these subjects. After knitting a few minutes in silence, she began. You've seen the old stone house, down on the bank of the river, all shut in with pines and evergreens. It's nigh a hundred years old. When I was born, it had been built ten years. When I was a young married woman, the barbers came to live there, and they was proud, high-feeling people that nobody could get acquainted with. That's what made them take it so dreadful hard when, ah, but here I am, way ahead of my story. You see, Mr. Barber embezzled or did something of that kind and went to prison. After he'd been there a year, he up and hung himself, and that is the last of him so far as my story goes. Then his wife and little boy shut themselves up in the stone house and never went outside the gate hardly. She'd had a good deal of schooling, his mother had, and she taught him herself as long as she could, and then he bought books and studied by himself. He tried going to school when he was a small boy, but one of the scholars threw it at him about his father, 
and Mortimer nearly killed him. And after that, his mother kept him home. And she was such a proud woman, was Ms. Barber, and lofty and severe in her ways. She wouldn't let nobody sympathize with her, which everybody wanted to, as there's so little going on in a place like Ragged Corner. Miss Barber was real selfish with her grief. So she got herself disliked. Besides, folks being suspicious after the way her husband turned out. What did they live on? Oh, the boy farmed it. And later they do say he wrote books on what they call natural history. Though to my mind, it was the most unnatural stuff I ever heard of. All about beetles and bugs with 300 muscles in their heads and as could carry 1,200 times their own weight on their backs, which everybody knows he must have got up as he went along. They were dreadfully taken up with each other, he and his mother, and she believed everything he said was so, even about the bugs and beetles. But she was his own born mother, and that explains it. When she died, Mortimer liked to went crazy. He planted her grave with violets and pansies, and at the head was a white marble monument he had gone to the city for. Nothing nearer would suit him. But he didn't display no taste. Nothing on it, my dear, but the old lady's name and the date she died. Not an angel, nor a cherub, or a lamb, or a broken rosebud, nor a bit of verse. Yet he always seemed to set store by her. Then Mortimer, he stuck to the old house, same as ever, though now he was alone. I used to wonder how it seemed to him late at night, hearing the swash of the river and the sign of them pine trees. He wore his hair long, as was the custom in them days, and it was curly up at the lens, like the picture of John Wesley. But he had eyes that went right through you and came out the back of your head, and he never set foot into the meeting house, no how. Now, he was the last man in the village I'd ever have said we got married. But as sure as you sat there, when the little milliner, Melinda McAllister, came into the place, he was struck. That wasn't nothing strange. All the young fellows was. But mind you, she was struck, too. No, you wouldn't have thought it. Everybody warned her and told her about his father hanging himself in prison and how queer his mother was and that Mortimer was as odd as Dick's hatband and wouldn't come to no good. She listened with her eyes big and cool and a little hot patch of red on her cheeks like a daub of paint, but she never said a word. That was Melinda McAllister all over. Never say a blessed word, but go and do just what she saw fit. First, we knew they was engaged, and then it was given out in a meeting. Next day, her aunt she lived with came to see me and wrung her hand, saying she wouldn't be surprised if Melindy was murdered before the year was out. What can you think of a man who lives like a hermit and had a crooked father and a peculiar mother? But we wasn't prepared for the worst. A day or two before the wedding, in comes old Ms. Johnson and says, Shut up the doors tight, says she, and the winders. I've got something to tell you that'll make your hair rise up, she says, whispering like. So I shut the door. She'll work on her hands together like one possessed. It's about Melindy, she went on. He's been and got a tombstone for her. Who? asked I, as if I didn't know, but my knees knocked together and I felt a bit sick. 
Mortimer Barber, says she. My grandson, Johnny, was after a bird's nest in a tree over in his yard. The limb broke and down he went right onto the roof of the old corn house that hasn't been used for years. It went in under him like tinder. And as soon as he could pick himself up and found no bones broke, what should he see but a new white gravestone a setting up quite pert in a corner against some rubbish. He went out to it and he says, as true as the Bible, he saw... Melinda Barber, cut on it, and the date she is a-going to die. I don't believe it, says I, but I was all a-faint and had to go and make us each a cup of tea so we could bear up under it. As soon as I said I didn't believe it, Miss Johnson said we'd go see ourselves, and we did go, Mortimer being away in the fields, and got into the cornhouse. It was towards dark, and we shook with cold, though it was a warm day in June. We'd brought a bit of candle with us, and old Miss Johnson lit it, and then we saw. Land sakes, child, how scared you look. Don't get so near the fire, honey. You'll be all ablaze. Oh, where was I? Oh, we saw the stone. Just as Johnny said, a real gravestone of white marble, and on it the name Melindy Barber, with the date September 5th, 18, below it. But the rest we couldn't make out. He's going to let her live three months. May heavens forgive him, said old Ms. Johnson, meaning different from what she said. The next day I went to Melindy and told her the whole truth. And would you believe it? She said she thought Ms. Johnson and I had no business prying about other people's affairs. If I had bought me a thousand gravestones, I'd have been just the same, says she. So they was married the next day in the meeting house. But Melindy was white as a ghost, and she trembled so she could hardly walk. They went right away on the cars, and we threw some old shoes after them. But all the wishing of joy was make-believe, and I never saw a bride with such a white, set face, never looking at her husband, nor yet at us. They was away nearly three months. Then they came back to the old house, but folks says they wasn't happy. They said she was cold as a stone. And he was always at his books and old insects. One day I got a letter asking me to come and see her. She was lying down on a lounge when I got there, white and so thin, with big eyes and a sorry, hungry look in them. But she had on a smart gown and was as pretty as a pitcher. As soon as we'd shaken hands and I'd taken off my bonnet and mantilla, she says, Do you know what day tomorrow is? Then I thought it up and said it was 5th of September, the day I am to die, she says in a soft, quiet way. Then I up and asked her if Mortimer had been ill-treating her. But she put up her finger and said, not a word to my husband. He doesn't know I know it. Then she said he was awful good to her, but she couldn't get that gravestone out of her head day or night. All at once, it came to me how matters was. She'd been too proud to give him up. Besides her liking him, too. And she'd been too proud to tell him about it. And so betwixt the two, the poor child was almost beat out. She asked if I would go out to the cornhouse with her to see the stone. She wanted to see it and was afraid to go alone. Then a queer thing happened. Mortimer had come into the next room while she'd been talking and heard every word. I never saw anybody so stirred up as he was when he came in. Is that the tombstone what has stood between us, he said, and went on to explain that it had been ordered for his mother. 
he was such a bad writer that the stonecutter mistook the name Malvini for Melindy. And after the stone was half cut, it was found out and they made him pay for it. So as it was his, they brought it to him and not knowing what to do with it, he just set it up in the cornhouse and forgot all about it. Melindy, she began to cry, and they fell to hugging and kissing each other as if they hadn't met for years. I tried to put in a word to calm them, but they saw me without seeing me and heard me without hearing me. So I put on my bonnet and mantilla and came away and left them. After that, dear me, they was the happiest couple you ever saw. They used the gravestone for a front doorstep, wrong side up, and it was real pretty. Melindy was dreadful proud of him and believed every word he wrote about them bugs and beetles, just as his mother did, which only goes to show that the old saying is true, that love is blind. <laughs> so, um, we've read lots of stories from the Black Cat uh, before, and uh, I think we agree they're pretty interesting. Um I did, I'm pretty sure this is the story you asked me um, if I knew anything about Clarice Irene Klingen. Um, I did. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't know at the time. All, all I knew about her was that she had written this story. But I have subsequently done research, and I have lots of answers for you. But before tell me, I, tell me. <laughs> before I get too deep into that, I just want to um, say... Um, you know, when I started reading this story, um, actually, my mom was reading it to me. Um, I was, I was like, "Oh, this is interesting. I, I think I know where this is going." Um, and I thought it, <laughs> I thought it was going to be an early variation on a, a Robert A. Heinlein story, an early one, where um, a man invents a machine that can predict the exact date of your death. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember Lifeline. the Lifeline. That's called, the name. It's of called it. Lifeline. That's right. It was his first published story. And right. Quite famous. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what I've noticed is, you know, there there are no new ideas. There's just you know ideas that are, we haven't seen for a long time. Um, uh-huh. And uh, so I thought that that's what was going to be happening here. And the reason I thought that is because our 15 um, year old narrator is kind of naive, and the uh, grandmother narrator is kind of backwards <laughs> um and i thought that it was going to be a big reveal that uh, he's just a scientist and he happens to know the day that she's gonna die <laughs> so when i i read this the first time i was like what that's stupid the guy misread read the the handwriting but um i i think it depends on what what you think this story is about right so the title is what made me read it, A Wedding Tombstone. That's a big surprise, right? Um, but uh, if this story is about a... If you think this story is about a guy who has invented a machine that can tell you the day of your death, and he, he wants to marry you anyways, uh, even though you're only going to live for three months after the marriage, that's a sweet story, right? Although why would he buy the tombstone early? I never thought about that, right? Um, but actually, that's not what this story is about. It's not about a guy who can predict a person's death or is planning on murdering his wife after three months. Rather, it's a story about a small-town busybody <laughs> or a group of busybodies who get it into their heads that um, everybody needs to know everybody else's business. And then they go around whispering these businesses to each other. Um, and... It actually causes a, a, a difficulty 
for a young married couple that is only relieved um, at the very last minute, right? And yet, um, I think that the story might have not existed at all had the busybody not been called over to the lady's house to say, you know, I think I'm going to be murdered tomorrow, even though my husband's so, you know, nice to me. I just I have to see this thing for myself. It's been preying on my mind. It preyed on their wedding, preyed on their their honeymoon, and yet it turns out um, it was all just like a a transcription error. <laughs> so I I, um, I think that it it's about being in a small town and having that sort of busybody nature. Um, but what really makes me interested in the story is actually the frame that this 15-year-old a uh, who's on uh, a month's vacation from school in November and visiting her, what I think is her 90-year-old grandmother uh, who's been living in the same house for 50 years that's, you know, dilapidated in some respects but is also modern in having electricity and such or telephone or whatever, whatever it would be in 1895. Um, <laughs> and, and they tr- seem to have tried to convince her to move away before the, be, I mean, this is all stuff in the background, right? But she is so much tied to quote unquote ragged corners and the happenings therein, um, that she's just delights in telling her granddaughter, whatever things happen to come to mind that the granddaughter's not aware of. And so this is like, it feels like this is part of a bigger, grander story of a family. And that's pretty impressive because it's not really about this, this couple, one who's a scientist and the other who's, you know, just a, a handsome bell who's being preyed upon by the local, uh, gossips. It, it, it's a small town story. Not a science fiction story. Well, I, I certainly agree. It's not a science fiction story, and I think <laughs> it is a small town story. But I, 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 I thought of the small town as a uh, a setting within which the jewel of this story, which I think is a marvelous story, the jewel of this story is set. I think the story is about love. Mm-hmm. Um. There's a lot of detail that show that, even though it, we're so distanced from it. One of the things, well, of course, it ends with that. You know, the last phrase is love is blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a lot put into this frame, as you, as you point to it, is important. Uh, this girl, the 15-year-old, she's 15. That's a, a good age for uh, pricking your finger against a spindle. Mm-hmm. For example, um, thinking of fairy tales, it's a uh, it's a crucial transitional age. This girl tells us that she had a great love of the romantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grandma is not a stupid person. Nope. For one thing, although her gra- although her the the dialect she speaks is not grammatically the same as standard English, she uses words like cornhouse. 
-hmm. or mantilla. A mantilla, she doesn't mean the Spanish kind of mantilla. It's a word for a kind of short cape that goes over your shoulders. Mm -hmm. This this grandma has a terrific vocabulary. She structures the story really well, mm -hmm. and she puts enormously useful detail into it. So grandma is quite sharp. How is it that she gave this story only when granddaughter came at the age of 15. Mm -hmm. Well, she expressed surprise at not knowing at the granddaughter. No, you don't know that story. Mm -hmm. Well, of course she doesn't know the story because grandma's been saving it until she's 15. I think you're In right. fact, it's, it's grandma's story, right? I mean, grandma is the one who went into the cornhouse. Ms. Johnson's grandson, Johnny mm -hmm. found out about it, mm -hmm. but right. Grandma went into the cornhouse with Ms. Johnson, and Grandma is the one who went over to the Melindy and Mortimer Barber. Mm -hmm. So it's Grandma's story, but she calls it the story of the wedding tombstone. Mm -hmm. Why is she telling her granddaughter, who is um, has a great love for the romantic, this story? Because the granddaughter is at a period of transition mm -hmm. into a world of romance. Mm -hmm. Now, I look at the symbolism in this story. I don't know if most readers or hearers would note it, but there is a very lengthy, considering how short the story is, mm -hmm. description of her house. Yep. And you pointed to that. We get a particularly pointed description of the fireplace. Throaty. Mm -hmm. Which, I beg your pardon? It's throaty. It is throaty. Right, it it pulls up a lot of air. It casts light and flame, mm -hmm. and it seems to me that this story is making a distinction between light, which is a standard symbol for knowledge, mm -hmm. and flame, when which knowledge may be hidden, but it's not clear that the knowledge is valid. Hence, the imagery, say, of the burning bush. Right, mm -hmm. the burning bush itself does not make its message clear as the light comes in and the scales fall from the eyes of of Saul and he becomes Saint Paul. Right, light imagery has to do with knowledge. Flame imagery is destructive and may be false knowledge or unknowable knowledge. This fireplace, which they have to come up close to, casts both light and flame, and that's what's going on in this in the, the courtship of Melinda and, uh, and Mortimer. They see each other and instantly fall in love, like Adam and Eve after eating the apple. Mm -hmm. To see is to have that true knowledge. The reason they didn't have a happy marriage to begin with is because they didn't have full knowledge. There was flame, there was heat, but there was no light. Now, I'm not making. I'm not talking about the, the light and heat imagery simply because I notice it in a couple of places. Although I do notice in a couple of key places, but it is in fact drawn most knowingly uh, from the Bible. When the grandmother says, "I spoke to them, trying to calm them," <laughs> like it was right, it was her, it was, right? It was her place to do that. Not at all. She says. They saw me without hearing me. Mm. They heard me without seeing me. They heard me without hearing me. She is paraphrasing Jeremiah. Right. A prophet without honor in his own land. 
She knows the truth because she can see it, but they don't. Now, we know that Granny is now a widow because there's no grandpa around. And we know that Granny had children because she's got a granddaughter. So Granny knew what it was like to live in an old house in this rural place, these ragged corners, and to have a life she became so attached to that she would never want to leave. Mm -hmm. She wants her granddaughter to see that you can be mistaken if you don't get the right knowledge. It is possible to fall in love, but in order to enjoy love, you really have to know what's going on. You need to shed real light. Heat alone is not enough. Mm. You're 15, young lady. When you feel heat, you may be attracted. Make sure you see the light and know whereof you are feeling. Know the character of the person to whom you are giving your heart. We know that Grandma lives in a fallen world because she thinks of this natural history that Mortimer writes as being unnatural history. But we readers know that, in fact, that is true. Right. He is right. Mm-hmm. And so the grandmother misunderstands the situation. Like Ms. Johnson, all along she has misunderstood. And why didn't she not, why did she not see 18, <laughs> what came after the 18 and the death date? Because it was hidden, and she didn't move anything to reveal it. Right, right. So Grandma, too, understands that partial knowledge leads to mistake. But real knowledge can lead to utter happiness. I think that this is a wonderful story that Grandma's been saving up until she saw that Granddaughter was at just the right stage to learn from it. I think it's very sweet. But my, you're right. It's not science fiction. My uh, my mom suggested I present this to you because uh, I didn't think that much of it the first time I read it. Uh, you know, I was like, oh, it's not a science fiction story. <laughs> um, but she's going to be very happy because she thought there was something here for Eric to dig out. And uh, I just uh, I, I noticed there's some things in here that are pretty interesting. Um, so to complement what you were just saying about the fire and the light. There's one point in the story um, where the grandmother breaks out of the narrative after she starts, right? So she actually takes her time. Um, She says, I'll tell you about the wedding tombstone. And then she, for a few minutes, vigorously continues her knitting. And then she speaks. So she's like setting the stage. She's clearing her throat, making awkward silence for the granddaughter to pay attention, right? what What is this about? Why is this so grave? And then about... I don't know, halfway through the story, she says, um, I'll just read this part on page uh, 32. It was towards dark, and we shook with cold, though it was a warm day in June. We'd brought a bit of candle with us, and Miss Johnson lit it, and then we saw, Land sakes, child! How scared you look! Don't get so near the fire, honey! You'll be all ablaze! Where was I? (laughs) So she just breaks into the story, right? Now Too the, much heat, not enough light. That's right. It's dangerous. And, and yeah. this is interesting because at the beginning of the story, the da- the granddaughter is approaching the fire, right? So you're yep. you're right. You're, this is all in here. Now, um, I think that there's a number of of again, it's so short, and yet every little word seems to do work. So the relationship of Mortimer and his wife Melindy. Um, we don't know almost anything about it, all because 
for one thing, the grandmother, um, she's a nosy lady. She wants to, she, they break into a piece of his property to investigate what somebody saw. And then they go and tell the girls who's planning on getting married to this guy, you know, he's planning to murder you, dear. <laughs> this is horrible stuff. Um, but you can see why the whole family, the uh, the Mortimer family, would just not, uh, or the Barber family, would just not want to be involved with this town. Um, the the father was, we're told, uh, imprisoned for some sort of crime. Um, in prison, he killed himself. When the schoolmaster made fun of the of the of the son in school, he almost no, kills. No, it's one of the one of the students. Oh, was it one of the students? One I thought of, it was the schoolmaster. One of the it said one of the scholars, but I think the word scholar is being used for someone who goes to school. I thought it was a schoolmaster. In any case, well. he he's taken out of school and he he's taught by his mother. Then he sends away for books. Um, when when his mother dies. Oh, we don't see this first wedding tombstone, the first one that was made. We only see the one that the grandmother describes uh, that's on his property. And it's uh, dignified and it's nice, but it doesn't have all of the things it needs, right? Like a little angel or a broken rosebud or whatever. And uh, to me, I'm like extracting information from this. This is a guy who doesn't go to the meeting house, a.k.a. he's an atheist, Right. The the people in the town don't believe in things like uh, uh, what's it natural history. They they don't believe that bugs can have three hundred muscles in their heads and twelve hundred legs or whatever. And that's ridiculous. So he's a weird bird. She's a weird bird. The mother is, and so nobody understands how they even farm. Well, maybe he farms a little bit. How do they get their money? Ah, oh, he sends away books that obviously are lies, right? So the, the grandmother is giving us a, a very dubious narrative all along. And yet the writer, Irene Kling, uh, Clarice Irene Klingen, is actually making it very clear for, uh, for us on the outside, seeing this story, that this is just a guy who, who believes in science and doesn't have a strong belief in the afterlife, that he's... <laughs> going to church. Uh, he's not going to church with the community. The only reason he goes to the meeting house is to get married. Let me add to that. Um, the meeting house, we know what kind of a meeting house it is in this small community. It's a Methodist meeting house. Right. And remember that Methodism began as a, a, uh, a revivalist uh, subset within the Church of England. A revivalist, and that's where you talk about meeting houses mm -hmm. with, with revivalists. The founder of Methodism is John Wesley. Mm, who's mentioned and in the story. Exactly, and we're told that, that Mortimer has eyes just like John Wesley, except that they could look right through you and out right. the back of your skull. Right. So the grandmother recognizes this man has the same kind of ability to see that the founder of the religion that creates the Meeting House mm -hmm. had, but he, in fact, can see even further and is not stopped by looking at just how human beings look at it. So you get to that last line, this proves love is blind. There are so many ways to interpret that. Yeah, it's a funny ending, right? Because it's a cliche, and yet... Um, uh, 
it seems like the grandmother possesses both ignorance and wisdom. <laughs> exactly. Right? And so and so does Melinda. Yeah. Yeah, she she, she doesn't she's believe blind to the warning. That's but right. She was right in seeing the love. That's right. That's right. And and it's uh, the re- the resolution here is interesting because ultimately it was a good marriage. <laughs> now the grandmother doesn't appreciate the fact that they don't want to appreciate her her calming them when they're like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I was so cold to you." <laughs> and how what does this have to do with what you've been able to discover about the author? She's real. I think she's real. And yet there's a good evidence to think why people think she's not real. So, um the Black Cat is an interesting magazine in that one of the things it did is, unlike a lot of other magazines, is it offered prizes for sale, right? It would, if you sell to the magazine, you get cash. You get this amount. First place gets $1,000. In 1890s, $1,000 is a lot of money. $100 is a lot of money. $100 is a lot of money for a story today, right? But yeah. back then, that's way more. So... There was some quasi-jealousy, quasi-concerns about what this magazine was. And I found, uh, this is an example. This is from a, a magazine called The Chapbook. Um, and it's, what did I, uh, it, oh, no, sorry. It's from, yeah, 1896, March 1896. Uh, the Bookseller and Newsman, it's called. I'm pretty sure this is where it's from. So this is a quote here. So it is befitting that I should compliment the black cat on never having a name on its title page, which anyone has ever heard of before or will, el- or will ever again. And then this is true. When you look at the title page of, of uh, the black cat, you don't see famous names. You, see, you don't see Edgar Allan Poe and Sinclair Lewis. And, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of people you'd never heard of. And, and that's one of the things that was striking to me about it. But I actually found out about it because Jack London sold his first story to the Black Cat. So obviously he's a real guy, right? But maybe that maybe they changed their policy later on. So we keep going. Each new issue drags before us a new group of authors and consigns to eternal oblivion the unfortunates who were slaughtered to set before the public's last month's banquet. I do not follow the frolics of the black cat too assiduously, yet I cannot remember twice to have seen the same name in a contents table. Someone has t- told me that the black cat is in fact written by a few clever hack writers who are engaged in a regular salary and who write stories and invent imaginary authors for them. The system is not necessarily a bad one if Mr. Marion Crawford, that's more famously named F. Marion Crawford, uh, who's got a couple of famous short stories that are still around today, uh, or Miss Adeline Sargent could be secured, the black cat would need only one employee. Either of these persons would, however, have a good sense to invent plausible names. Take the issue of June as an example. McPherson Fraser has a flavor of reality about it, but can one possibly believe that Leo Gale, Mabel Shippey, Clark, uh, Mabel Shippey Clark or a Clarice Irene Klingon or a Geek Turner. <laughs> so this is people questioning whether the Black Cat is a legit magazine with legit authors. This is and yeah, uh, uh, this is it, a practice. It could, it could be that it's a house name. It, it as, could as, absolutely. As, this is a practice that you know is not to be doubted because even in the 1950s, there's whole issues of. 
of uh, some of the cheaper science fiction magazines, Robert Silverberg wrote every story. <laughs> He's just a writing machine, and he he could sell a whole bunch, and he used Robert Silverberg for one of the names, and the rest are all somebody else, right? Some other name. I did find, though, that for this name, whether mm-hmm. there really was a Clarice Irene Klingon or not, uh, that name had three stories in the Black Cat over oh, yeah. the course of its run and published a novel Oh, yeah. that girl from Bogota. Indeed. I've got, I've got a, um, even more than that. So the first one is The Little Brown Mole, 1890. Uh, sorry, after this one. There's uh, The Little Brown Mole in The Black Cat and The Seaweed Room in 1896. And there's a novel uh, called, as you mentioned, uh, That Girl from Bogota. There's another novel called Six Months in Hades that comes out in 1899. And uh, Mr. Mrs. Williams' Wild Ride, 1901. That's actually in, uh, it was a copyright, submitted two copies to the Copyright Office, right? Library of Congress. So she's submitting on her, on her own name. A Sagittarius Woman in 1898. Um, and more importantly, I found a newspaper article in the Newton July... Uh, Newton B, Newtown, it's uh, in Connecticut, uh, B, July 6, 1894, Miss Clarice Clingham returned to New York on Saturday, having spent six weeks vacation in Stepney. Doesn't have Irene in the middle, but the fact that a woman disappears from history, perhaps after she gets married and changes her name and stops writing for a living, um, shouldn't surprise us. But this person is real. There's just the the fact that she submitted to two copies under her own name to the Library of Congress uh, of of a certain story. These other ones, um, it most of the other writers in in Black Cat don't get published elsewhere, but they do get repeated publication in the Black Cat. And I think that that it's just tapped into an audience of people who are getting rejected from other magazines. Because they're offering cash money prizes, right? So I don't think that this... uh, I think this is just too good to be done by a hack, if you know what I mean. I agree. And I've got to say, if your your speculation is correct, that there really is this person, and she really did write for the Black Cat and really published at least two other novels, Mm -hmm. but then disappeared, got married, came home, and didn't write anymore either because she didn't have to or because her husband preferred that she wouldn't. Mm-hmm. And so, like like Melinda, she is willing to satisfy her husband's needs, come what may. Um, it's a shame, from my standpoint as a reader, that she didn't keep writing, because I think she'd always have more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.